Alrighty, let us begin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I look 20 years younger, mashallah, mashallah. Alright, this is being already sound like the, the class I do with my daughters and my nieces and nephews. Okay, so yeah, all of you keep a straight face while you're watching class. Okay. In any case, uh, let us continue where we left off. We were looking at Surah Al-Baqarah. And, and our focus, we are completing the section on, on foundational beliefs and foundational commands and concepts. And I'm going to pull up that screen, uh, the screen of the ayat. Assuming I didn't do something strange on my computer here. Oh, there it is. Okay. So here we have the Google Chrome. And I don't even know how that Loyola window opens because it was originally on this. And, and so rather than rewrite all of the different parts, what I'd like us to look at, uh, we looked at the commands, and so we have three, uh, three essentially universal commands, so to speak, and then we have the, uh, the conditional commands, and, and then we have basic arguments for, for, for belief, which is what we discussed uh, yesterday. Now what I'd like us to do is look at these things from the conceptual side, and we saw a bit of it in terms of, of Allah Ta'ala, and so when we speak of the first uh, ayah in this section, we have this principle that Allah Ta'ala is a creator of all. Some of this is going to seem very, very basic, but the point is to, to lay it all out, that here we have Allah Ta'ala as a creator of all. He created you as he created those before you. Okay, this we've just discussed. And then <clears throat> he created everything around us for us. Then, what do we have here? If you're in doubt about what we have sent down to our servant, then produce a surah like this, call upon your witnesses other than Allah. And so then we have prophethood. Sorry, just need to let some more people into the room. So then we have prophethood, that Allah Ta'ala has chosen specific people with the responsibility of being prophets. And he is also the maker of hell. And what is almost every single time the case, anytime you see a reference to hell, right before it, right after it, you'll see a reference to heaven. And so all of this is prepared for the people of heaven. that you will have gardens beneath which rivers flow. You'll be provided with fruits that you'll recognize and you'll have pure spouses and you'll be there uh, eternally. And then we spoke last time of Allah Ta'ala as majesty. It is not beneath Allah Ta'ala to, to, to talk about things that seem insignificant. Now, one way that specific point is understood is that the way Allah Ta'ala designed this deen, the way Allah Ta'ala designed this religion, 
is that it is accessible to everyone, regardless of official educational level. That I can be someone who has multiple degrees, or I can be someone who has no degrees, not even the ability to read or write. And as a second person, I have the opportunity to go as high and as close to Allah Ta'ala as the person with the advanced degrees. That the pathway is open to everyone. Access to the king of all kings is open to everyone. And then there are some commitments that we make with Allah. Uh, the primary one to be to take Allah as our Rabb. And then there are prescriptions that Allah Ta'ala has also given us. So he's the creator of all. He's created everything for us. And then he sent prophets. And then through those prophets, he's also uh, uh, given us prescriptions to follow. And if we don't follow them, then we'll be the losers. And then we have this whole life cycle. And uh, did we draw the whole life cycle with the four, par uh, four parts? I believe we have. And maybe if, if it's beneficial, we can redraw it really quickly. Okay, so you're saying no. All right, let's do this pretty quickly. So if you look at all, all the, the basic parts to, to the human experience, So it plays out like this. Sammy, this doesn't look familiar. So here we have which is what we're gonna call our worldly life. Prior to this, we were in our mother's womb. Prior to this, we're in some sort of pre-eternity, pre-womb state. And then we have Barzakh, the state of death. And then we have Akhirah, which is Day of Judgment, not to be confused with the Department of Justice, with the end result being either we go to paradise. or we go to hell. And some people will be in hell temporarily. Okay, so these are essentially the, the, the parts to life. This is also called the last day. Right here we have birth. Entry into your mother's womb, death, and resurrection. Good. So this is a this is the lifespan that each of us go through. So, <clears throat> what is happening in the womb? What is happening in the womb has influence over what happens in your worldly life. So look at this a few ways. For example, we are taught that in your worldly, in your when you're in your mother's womb, you are uh, you are what's the word? You're essentially what whether you're going to be happy, whether you're going to be sad, that will that is being written for you. Uh, the experience you have in your mother's womb from a physiological perspective 
will also uh, will also uh, affect what is happening in your worldly life. And then what you do in your worldly life, the choices you make in your worldly life, will affect the type of experience you have in the, in the barzakh, and will especially affect what you have, what, ex what experiences you have on the last day. And because of the fitrah that is also playing out here, and that is also having influence here too. <clears throat> and then have we also spoken about your, your, uh, the things that influence you in your life? Have we done that? Sound familiar? No? Yes? Okay, blank stairs? No? Okay. So the first point we're making is that uh, first you were without life, and then Allah brought you to life, and then you're going to die, and then he's going to bring you back to life, and then you will return to him. Yeah, that's what that ayah is saying. And then let's go back to the ayah, and then we'll also look at the influences that we have on our lives in just a moment here. So, so he brought you to life. He will cause you to die. Then he will bring you back to life. Then he'll return. You'll be returned to him. And then last in this section, he created for you all that is on the earth. And then he made, directed himself to seven skies and made them, or to the sky and he made seven skies. He's in order of all things. The use of the number seven. This is a common element in uh, Puranic rhetoric as well as biblical rhetoric that seven is often used to mean many. So seven, 70, 700, 7,000, 70,000, so forth and so on. Uh, because it's in the Quran, we take it literally, but we also take it metaphorically. And, and what we mean by this is the way you and I use numbers like a million or a billion. Uh, the Quran uses numbers that are of seven and beyond. So if, if I say I have a million friends, some of you will think, mashallah, those of you who know me well will say, okay, that's a complete lie. No, the point being that uh, uh, if I'm saying I have a million friends, it means I have a lot of friends. In reality, I might have eight friends. Okay. And so in this language, I would say I have seven or 70 friends okay, to, to make the point. In any case, <clears throat> that's the use of the number seven. But what I want to draw our attention to is to also look at the whole picture that Allah Ta'ala is creating. And this foundational, uh, what is the, one of the, another foundational concept that Allah Ta'ala has designed everything at the service to, to us. And he's designed us to be at his service. And that is this, this principle throughout the, the whole text. Uh, let's look briefly at, at influences. In fact, uh, I'm going to hold off on that. We'll come back to that because I'm afraid it might confuse some of you. Now we're getting into uh, what is the, the final um, section of this unit. And at the speed that I'm going, obviously, it'll probably take <clears throat> a bit of time to get through it. But now let's go through this. So Surah Al-Baqarah, I'm not going to write out the whole thing. We said the intro is ayahs 1 through 39. So now ayahs 2, or ayahs 30 through 39, uh, we said our origins. First, our, or us and the world. And then we have three narratives here. The announcement, uh, 
prostration. Prostration and tree. And the closing. Okay. So <clears throat> the origins, the announcement, or the uh, in the section on origins, it's the announcement, the prostration, and the tree. That's uh, that's uh, what we'll have in this section. Now, we've seen a, the Quran speak in a number of different ways. What was the last one? Uh, the last one was the um, was the tree and closing. I have thirty five through thirty nine. Tree and the closing. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's just go back to this for anyone who, who needs to see. I'll give you another minute or so. Okay. Got it. Right. And I'm just gonna look at. Um... Okay. All righty. <laughs> So, a number of techniques in terms of how the Quran speaks. Not necessarily in any given order. Allah Ta'ala will give attributes. Yeah. So, in the first part of Al-Fatiha, we have a number of attributes of Allah. Yeah. And then in the end of Al-Fatiha, we have attributes of the straight path. It's a path of those you have favored, not of those on whom is anger, nor of those who are astray. Another the way the Quran speaks is by ambiguities. So, alif, lam, mim, what does that mean? Right. We also saw attributes of the people of taqwa. We saw attributes of the kafirs. We saw attributes of the monophics. And then, uh, what else do we have? We have metaphors or similes. Their likeness is as the likeness of a man killing a fire, and then his light spreads all around, or the one in a rainstorm, or the, 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 the case where you have lightning um, uh, crashing down. And then how else will Allah speak? By commands and prescriptions. These are, are all the big ones we've had so far. And now we have a new one. History. So you can often recognize when Allah Ta'ala is using a metaphor because it'll begin with something like their likeness, mathalohom. And you can recognize commands and prescriptions by the grammatical form, the fail amr, which is basically do this or don't do this. And these are small points. It's not as important for our purposes that you remember this. You can tell when you're reading a history because history will begin with What if? Which literally translates as, as and when. But what is it saying? It's saying, what does it mean? Take a lesson take a lesson from this prior event. So when we have historical narratives, we're basically being told, take a lesson from this prior event. Now, here's another question to think about. Now, does anybody still need this? If you do, just say yes. So, uh, or seeing anything, so I'll go forward. But if you need me to come back, let me know. 
Here's a question about history. Are they actual events? Are they allegories? So actual events, we understand what that means. Like, did it really actually happen? And did it happen the way the Quran is saying it happened? Or is the Quran maybe massaging the facts to give us a lesson? So for example, and you can, you can enter this into the chat box, whatever it is, your opinion is, <clears throat> we have the people of the Sabbath people of the fish. So the question is, did this literally happen? What is the story? You had these people who were supposed to be worshiping this one day and doing their trade the other six days of the week. And then they notice that the day that they're in worship, that's when the fish seem to come close to, to the shore. And so they decide, all right, what do we do? Let's, uh, according to one narrative, let's build a net so that on that day that we're in worship, all the fish will get stuck. Yeah. According to another narrative, let's dig a trough into the ground. So when the fish come, they'll, get, they'll fall into the trough yeah. while we are in the temple worshiping. And so they did that, and then they were punished for it, and they were turned into apes. They were told by Allah, you know, be apes. So, Did they turn into apes? So jump in, type your answers. What do you think? Did they literally turn into apes? What do you all think? Umar al-Khadra, no, Sharik, no, Hana, no. Abu Hassan, no. Abu Rahma, yes. Okay, Saudi, who knows? Basir, probably not. Okay, okay, you, you guys can give me these political answers. Probably not. It's possible. Allah knows. Okay, I want you to take a, the Quran is a greater, a greater miracle than that. Uh, Luffy, uh, please explain what that means. And how did you get that, that image? Maybe, doesn't matter. Not sure. Okay, seriously, seriously. Okay, let's change the question. I always thought it was true. Nice. There's saw Asma's taking a stand. Okay, then let's change the question. Yes, uh, what Abu Bakr said about the Maharaj, nice, nice. So, so therefore, Lutfi, you're saying that this did happen. Yes, inshallah, is essentially what Abu Bakr is saying. Okay. Why would it matter if it was an actual fact? Okay, good question, future Dr. Mirza. Okay, what if we do this? Um, we have the people of Nuh, peace be upon him. The, uh, he is calling his people for 900 years. In 900 years of calling them, 12 people embrace his message. Everybody rejects them. Rejects him. The Nuh makes the prayer to Allah Ta'ala. This is now in Surah 71. That, okay, I call them privately. I call them publicly. And as much as I call them, there are some leaders calling against me, saying, don't give up your idols. And people were listening to that. And so then Allah, the Nuh salam, says, all right, yeah, Allah, get rid of them. And then we have a flood that encompasses the whole globe. So was it a global flood? Yes, no. No? Some say yes, some say no. Yes, no. Okay, no one's saying Allah knows now. Okay, anyone else? Yes? No? Okay, is that another one? Okay, Nabil has given us our, our maybe. Okay. okay, 
people of Musa. Peace be upon him. So, <clears throat> so moment, if he's a sharp one, flood in the known world. So maybe it was just like, you know, a radius of about, about 300 miles. Okay. Um, people of Musa, they said, Musa and Harun are being called to Fir'aun, and he is rejecting, he's rejecting them. And so Musa and Fir'aun take their people. Fir'aun, Pharaoh is chasing after them. They come to the sea. Musa hits his staff in the ground. The water splits into two mountains of water. And then they walk through to the other side. And then Pharaoh's people arrive, and, the, and they try to go through, and the water comes crashing down on them. Did the water split? They did the water split into two mountains of water. So I'm saying not low tide. I'm saying mountains of water. Anybody want to say no? Got a lot of yeses. Nobody wants to say no. Okay, Omar says no. <laughs> I like it more. Okay. We saw, we saw it in the movie. <laughs> okay, so therefore it's true. Yeah. All right, so here's the question. <clears throat> okay, what about Allah mentioned that if, uh, I think even Hazratinus did not pray to him. Okay, we can add that. Yunus salam, turns away from his people, is caught by a fish, and is inside a fish. That, I think, I mean, all that had to happen was once in history. And, that, that, and then there isn't really any physics being violated there. Yeah. So, so related to, to Sada, who's saying we can't say that it's literal unless it's impossible. So why is it so easy for us to believe that... Uh, in the case of Musa salam, the water split into two mountains of water, yet it's so hard for us to believe that this small group of people, maybe a dozen people, were turned into apes. What do you think? Okay, in the example of the people of the cave, the Quran says don't dispute about the details. So then uh, we would say that uh, we believe in terms of the case of the people of the cave, that they may have been asleep for 300 years because they're human, so it feels more cruel to admit. Okay, maybe. People of the Sabbath are nameless. I mean, aren't, except for Moses, peace be upon him, and about two or three other people in his crowd, the other 600,000 people are not named, although the tribes are named. Okay. Okay. Movies. All right, so I'm going to suggest the reason it is so easy to believe that the flood happened with Noah, and it's related to our point about, about movies, is because it's such a common belief in our society that it doesn't seem to be too radical to claim it. Okay. Moses splitting the sea was a story I heard constantly. I mean, Ten Commandments is probably going to be on, on TV this weekend. I mean, this is Passover and Easter. And then, and so because the story of the people of the fish is not a common story, it gets harder for us to say, yeah, it's literal. So that's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting it doesn't have as much to do with the fact of the event as much as it has to do with general sentiment around us. And so that's the question I'm raising about actual events. Now we do, we did see way back in IA 26, what is, and this is sort of related to Sadia's point, what is the basic requirement we have to have is that all the words of the Quran are true. Okay, that's our requirement. But the meaning is a different issue. Meaning the Quran is, the words of the Quran, speaking about uh, Musa, Nuh, peace be upon them, people the fish. Whatever Allah Ta'ala said is true, what we understand is a different issue. And so we can add some more to this. We can add the, the virgin birth of, of Jesus, peace be upon him. Or, simplest question of them all, how many of you do not believe in angels? Anyone want to say, me, me, me? I mean, that is, 
as much outside the realms of physics as anything I've listed here, if not more. And so this is related to Lutfi's point. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, went, uh, not sure what they're like, well, hopefully they will like you, but uh, 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 the Prophet, peace be upon him, <laughs> I like when I, when I tease Abdullah that Sandy starts smiling really big. Uh, when he went on the night journey, and official belief is that the night journey, he physically went on the night journey, although what does that even mean? And he comes back, and then he starts telling people about everything he saw. I went to hell, I went to heaven, I had this conversation with God, and he even gives details, which if you go through the Hadith, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Like they go to a level of heaven, and Jibreel knocks on the door, and on the other side, someone's like, who is it? He says, it's Jibreel. Who's with you? Muhammad. Oh, okay. And the door opens. And this is what's happening at every single level of heaven. Okay. And, and uh, so as the prophet, peace be upon him, is telling everyone what happened, there are even people who leave the deen saying, yeah, I can't believe this. And then the famous story is that they go to Abu Bakr and says, and they say, can you believe what your friend is saying now? And then Abu Bakr says, if he said it, then it's true. Good. And what did he say? So then they explained uh, what the Prophet peace be upon him was saying about the night journey. And then Abu Bakr says, which is what Lutfi said, that <clears throat> I believe that these words, these amazing words are coming from the sky. The Quran is more amazing than what you're you know, saying that he said. Good. I believe the Quran is more amazing than the night journey itself. Okay. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Mohi's point is also uh, valid, but I think it applies to a whole lot of things too. That sometimes it's get uh, you do see the story of of the fish of the people of Sabbath also being used in terms of of other discourse regarding uh, politics around the Middle East and such. Okay, but that's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that what uh, in its core it's easier to believe that. Uh, that things that other people are believe as literal, it's easy for us to believe. And if other people aren't familiar with it or don't believe it as literal, then it might be harder for us and such. So the default is to take all these as actual events. And so did they turn into apes? The interesting point about this is that seems to be debated. Uh, you know, being turned into apes, is it an insult? Okay, you guys are as useless as a bunch of apes or were they physically turned into apes? So I'm saying through the centuries, it doesn't seem like we have anything close to consensus on that one. In, the contra in contrast, we have consensus on the flood of Noah, on the virgin birth of, of Isa, salam, peace be upon them all, on, on the splitting of the sea. So did they turn into apes? Don't know. I have no problem believing that they turn into apes. And so the, the real benefit, however, for us is what is the lesson to be taken? Okay. And yeah, uh, uh, I even sat in an interfaith dialogue and I started, you know, I started doing a Dr. Fauci when the, the Muslim guy, the question was about evolution. And the Muslim guy says, based on this ayah, we believe apes came from humans. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. In any case, so the point I'm making is that what we're about to go through in terms of the story of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, the default opinion is to say that these events literally happened. And at the same time, there are also allegories. So now let's get into... Okay. Wait, wrong screen. I have a quick question. Yes, where, who's speaking? Omar? Yes. Um, is there, so the, the story of like the ape is not, uh, doesn't have a lot of consent. So in it's society. Consensus. Consent consensus is a different word. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Consensus. Yeah. So in, like in society, a lot of, like it's not talked about a lot in comparison to the sea being split, for example. Yeah. Is there something that doesn't have a lot of a story that doesn't have a lot of consensus, but is talked about a lot in society? So people tend to believe that it is true, but it does not have consensus. Well, I mean, um, uh, across biblical tradition, 
the belief is God promised, God make, made a specific covenant with Abraham, peace be upon him, that extends to the children of Israel as the chosen people. We don't believe that. You know, and that would be an example that often comes up um, in, in my classes and in interfaith questions. We do believe that Allah has made a commitment for all human beings, but not a specific uh, status for the, for, for the Jews. That would be an example of something like that. Okay, good. So now, <clears throat> looking at origins, let's get into us in the world. Uh, again, laying out a little bit of foundation. So stopping this share and then getting into this other share. And it's already 9.04, so uh, we're not gonna get too far in trouble, but we can still make uh, a little bit of headway. And so share again. Okay, so what did we say in I-29? The earth has been made for us. The world has been made for us. And then what we're about to see in the announcement is that Allah Ta'ala is then at the same time making us a deputy for him in the world. So the world has been designed for us, but our job to Allah is to be the caretakers of the world. So think of the two relationships. If we only said that our job, that the world was designed for us and Christianity, there's a whole school of theology called dominionists, which is dominant in right-wing Christianity today in America, which is basically the view that the whole world is for us to devour. They don't they won't say devour, but to use according to our pleasure. And that's why there's not much concern about climate change that's why it's drill everything, fracking everything, because it's tracing, the support is being traced to a school of theology that we have dominion upon the earth. But we are being told that we have, uh, that we, the world has been made for us and still we have responsibilities to, to Allah on the earth. So the sort of two, um, uh, in a way, almost balance each other out. Now, the other thing I want to introduce, and then we'll stop for, for, for questions, is the, would be the characters in our story. Okay, so the characters. So how do we read, how do we decipher Metaphors, we go through each step of the metaphor to try to make sense of it. How do we decipher the lessons from history? We look at the characters and the events. We already talked about the events, three events, the announcement, the prostration, and the tree. First character, of course, is Allah. Second character are angels. Third character would be a jinn. And the fourth character, humans. The Quran only names Adam, does not name Eve, you and your wife. Now, the jinn in our story, his later name is Iblis. And there are multiple sources on what his actual given name is. One, this is outside of the Quran, Azazil. Another is Harith, and a title that he received is Hakam. All of this is outside of the Quran. And when I'm saying outside of the Quran, it may mean Hadith literature, or it may mean a body of literature that we call Israeliyat. And let me just quickly talk about Israeliyat. Israeliyat is whatever we can find in Jewish and Christian sources. Angels, particular names are not given. 
But I'd like you to think about this in a couple of ways. So after Allah Ta'ala. And so some of this you already know the answers to. Um, form and will. What are angels made from? Anybody? Light, yes. What are jinns made from? A type of fire. And then what are humans made from? Yeah, clay and water. Do angels have free will? And by free will, I mean the ability to disobey Allah. No. Now keep in mind, they do have will. They do have self-consciousness. They do have identities. Okay. But ultimately, they do not have the ability to disobey Allah. So the easiest way to think of angels in our tradition, think of them as God's robots. They're the ones that are running the entire universe. We'll talk a little bit more about this. They're the ones who are running heaven. They're running hell. Do jinns have free will? Yeah. Jinns have free will, although it seems as though it's harder for a jinn to turn bad or to turn good. If you're leaning towards goodness, it's hard for a good jinn to go bad, and it's hard for a bad jinn to go good. But, uh, uh, but they have free will. Do humans have free will? Remember our discussion a couple of, uh, uh, yeah. So we believe humans have free will. Okay. Now, in our tradition, which one of these is the most superior of creations and why? Angels, jinns, or humans? Humans are the most superior, why? Humans are superior, not so much for choice, that's part of it, but because of intellect. And so <clears throat> angels have intellect, jinns have intellect. The easiest way to comprehend from our lens the intellect and relate to that the behavior of a jinn, think of them as man babies. Meaning they behave like children. Even though they might be, you know, a thousand years old. Okay, and I think someone posed a question, is this literal or figurative? Again, it's the same question. Uh, that when we're speaking of the form, uh, the common understanding is that angels are coming from a particular type of light. Jinns are formed from a particular type of fire and humans are formed from a particular type of clay. But I believe we can also read these metaphorically as well, that the behavior of angels is like light in terms of everything synthesizing naturally together. Whereas the creatures of the world, friction is a big part of our design and fire is, is uh, the behavior of something that just seeks, seeks to grow until it consumes everything, perhaps. Okay, so a lot of today's discussion was more foundational. We, we, we looked at just a couple of ayahs. Uh, let me open the floor for questions. So let's see, I've heard angels being described as pure intellect, what is distinctive about human intellect. So there you find that in certain theological schools that angels are pure intellect. And intellect is then made synonymous with light. That angels are, uh, that knowledge is light. Angels are pure light, therefore angels are pure intellect. And what is the purity of the intellect of angels? Their whole focus is on Allah Ta'ala. And that's, uh, that's how that logic uh, follows. Do angels have the ability to question Allah like they did when Allah was creating humans? I think Sarami literally answered your question that they had the ability to question Allah like they did. And so they have, uh, we have other examples outside of the Quranic text of angels uh, questioning Allah, yes. It does not seem to be that that was the only time. Uh, Jewel says the chart with the stages of life does without life mean death? Uh, uh, let's see. Um, uh, Jewel, if you draw our attention, where specifically are we speaking of without life? Uh, is I'm not quite understanding. Uh, 
And uh, if angels have the most intellect than humans, then how can humans be superior? Ah, angels don't have the most intellect. Angels have the purest intellect. Oh, before birth. Before birth, uh, we are in the womb and pre-eternity. We still are in some sort of life. Are jinns predetermined to heaven or hell since they can turn into good or bad? Uh, so jinns are going to be held to account on the day of judgment, not unlike the way we are. Some people say that in dunya, jinns can see us, but we can't see them. Um, but in akhira, some people say we can see jinns, but they can't see us. But who knows? Uh, you mentioned the worldly life impacts the barzakh and the day of judgment. Does the barzakh in any way impact the day of judgment? I've not come across anything where anyone's saying that the barzakh impacts the, the the day of judgment uh, our uh, it's almost like a, a uh, it's like the dream sleep that you have before a giant exam and, and either if you're completely ready then you are going to sleep well if you're not at all ready meaning in dunya you treated people harshly then your experience of the is going to be horrible do you think there's a connection between reading historical accounts in revelation literally and the tendency towards dominion, uh, dominionism. Uh, Dr. Mahan, if I can ask you to uh, expand on that question, because uh, 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 I'm not sure that I'm understanding. Did you say they're not going to be judged? They're going to be judged with the uh, sentence being heaven or hell. Yes. How does pre-eternity affect this worldly life? Because all of us are hardwired with fitzerah. And so your default behavior Barring physiological issues is going to be to preserve your fitzrah until you, you corrupt it or do otherwise. Intelligence does not imply superior any more than richer does. It is having something more of something that Allah gave. Um, I don't know, uh, Dr. Mohi, if that's a question or, or what. I'm including intelligence in terms of capacity as well as knowledge. Um, uh, let's see. So can jinn do stuff in this world? I'm not as much thinking about haunted things as like pretend to be people or something. I have an idea about it, but it's clear, kind of elusive. I'm not sure if that's clear. Uh, we can give you all kinds of stories about that. Uh, yeah, a moment. Uh, the general belief is that, that jinns can do things like take human form because we have stories in the Sira of, of, of Iblis uh, taking human form and also the story of, of Ibrahim salam going to slaughter his son um, that, that Iblis came to him, Shaitan came to him in various forms, one of which was, was human. Uh, how are they judged if they're born good or bad? I'm not saying they're born good or bad. I'm saying that they have free will, and if they start leaning towards one, it's harder to, to switch, but they can switch. Jinns, to make it more fun, also have religions, so you can have Muslim jinns, Christian jinns. Uh, Shaitan, when you're born, assigns a jinn to you, who monitors and gets to know everything about you. It's called the Qareen. And of course, the Sahaba asked, even you, Ya Rasulullah, peace be upon him, and said, yes, but mine became Muslim, which I think is a pretty cool story. Um, is the ability of angels to question of Allah a form of will? Yes. Uh, but the key point when we're talking about free will, I'm saying angels do not have the ability to deny, to, to say no to Allah. So they can ask Allah questions. They can ask Allah, are you sure? They can ask Allah Ta'ala uh, for more detail, but they don't have the ability to say no. Um, they do seem to have intellect though. They ask a question drawing an experience, the vice chair will spill blood. That we will talk about, uh, inshallah, when we get into it, different meanings of it. Is purgatory hell for a time before heaven from our tradition? Um, it seems that there are some minor schools of theology, especially the Mu'tazila, they do seem to believe in something like purgatory. Okay, so, so to clue everybody else in, among the various schools of theology, there's this one school that takes a lot of Greek ideas, uh, although uh, the whole of our tradition has a lot of Greek ideas. And, and, and they believe that a person is born zero. Okay. So textbook Sunni Islam, textbook Shia Islam, you're born innately good. And if you were to die at birth, you're going straight to paradise, meaning your default is to go to paradise. Okay. And not only is your default to go to paradise, our default is to go to the top level of paradise. And my wrongdoings that don't get uh, replaced or forgiven or wiped out lead me to go to a lower and lower and level, lower step of paradise. Okay, so understand that point. The Mu'tazila, this one school, 
that had presence at around the 700s and then reached a peak in the 800s, but it still persisted for centuries after that, <clears throat> they argue you're born at zero. So if you ask a textbook Sunni, what happens to a baby when, when the baby dies? We say it goes to paradise. When you ask a Shia, what happens to a baby when the baby dies? We say they go to straight to paradise. A Mu'tazila says the baby hasn't earned anything. So the baby is in this middle space. So, so Dr. Mohi, that seems to be one influential theological school that believes in a purgatory where you're neither punished nor rewarded. The majority, overwhelming majority opinion otherwise is hell, even if it's for a time, it's still hell. It's not a purgatory, meaning it's hell with all the punishment that goes with it. Sammy, the point of angels, would it be correct to say that angels have the purest irada, but not the ability to change that irada to, through niya and amal? Ooh, that's deep. Uh, it works, and I'm going to have to reflect on that for a while, but so far I'm going to say yes. Momin, not to be undone by Sammy, trying to contact Jin, like for understanding or whatever other reason. Is it possible, discouraged, dangerous, something else? Is that what magic is defined as? Momin, ask your dad about that question based on a common friend uh, from, from the past. But the short answer is, is that it's generally considered to be dangerous and more than that, it's considered to be unnecessary. Because uh, 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 you're sort of playing with, with a hot coal. How can it be fair to speak of God's knowledge using the same words we use for man's knowledge? Whoa, this is, okay, I'm gonna have to sit straight for this one. Man's knowledge follows ignorance, but God is never ignorant. In the Bible, some make the translation man in God's image. How do we avoid falling into shirk? What is the point of allegorical analogies of fire and light dirt? Whew, okay, this is gonna be like a whole semester. Let me see if I can answer some of this, okay. How can it be fair to speak of God's knowledge using the same words we use for man's knowledge? That is a very good question. Part of the issue is the limits of human, of just uh, human capability. Yeah. And so we're using words that Allah Ta'ala has given us. And now here's another interesting difference between Sunni and Mu'tazila theology. Sunni theology says the attributes of Allah, the true meaning of them are whatever Allah means them to be. We, in our capacity, try to understand them in our capacity. But the real meaning is whatever Allah says. Okay. The Mu'tazila argue that <clears throat> Allah Ta'ala gave us an intellect and he gave us these words so we can understand with our intellect what these things mean. Okay. So your question fits more in the Sunni framing in the sense that, okay, we don't know. So we've been given all these attributes of Allah, but he's not limited by those attributes. He's also not limited by the fact that he's not limited by those attributes but he gives us those attributes for us to try to develop uh, an appreciation for him. Yeah, so that's the first part. So essentially I'm saying it's the limit of our language. Why do we use the, the word, the pronoun he for Allah when all of us say Allah has no, no uh, gender, that's a limit of the Arabic language. There might be other wisdoms there because it doesn't feel good to say it for Allah, right? Man's knowledge follows ignorance, but God is never ignorant. So I think that's a continuation of the, of the first point. So how do we avoid falling into shirk? So shirk, think back to our lesson on lying. Shirk is shirk if, uh, according to what Allah and then uh, who through the prophet defines as shirk. And so this would be something that looks shirk-like, but it's not shirk unless the prophet says so. Yeah. Make sense? Okay. Um, and so likewise for all these other terms. This is even, think about this when we were talking about paradise. Uh, the prophet peace be upon is giving us depictions of paradise and he's using words to help us understand, but what he witnessed, did he even witness those things with his eyes? Or did he witness it with his heart or what? That's I think a, a question. So when the prophet met Allah Ta'ala, in the hadith it says he didn't see him with his eyes. And yet he's having a conversation at the lillahi so you know so forth and so on. Um, but how did he communicate? That's beyond our our, our comprehension. Yeah. One of the ayahs Allah says he made everything on earth and then seven heavens. Is it sequential order here? Fantastic question. So when I talked about the three events that we're gonna have in the origin story, the announcement, the prostration of the tree, I'm not implying that that's step one, step two, step three. They might have all happened at the same time. 
So here, sometimes people use the conjunctions and, and the particles to determine it seems as though one came first, one came second, but uh, Allah knows best. That's literally uh, how we have uh, what theological schools will explore. Dr. Mohi, so to clarify, without using the term purgatory, our tradition does say you can go to hell and then to heaven. Okay, yes. Uh, and may he spare us in hell, I mean. So it's overwhelming majority opinion that some people will be in hell temporarily and then will eventually go to, to paradise. What is not overwhelming majority opinion is will that happen for everybody? It's pretty safe to assume Shaitan is never gonna go to paradise. Yeah. Probably safe to assume Pharaoh is never gonna go to paradise. But what about some other people? What about non-Muslims? Uh, so can I ask a question about the purgatory thing too? This is Peroza. Yeah. So I'm so a little confused. I thought purgatory was actually not just a holding place where, you know, nothing's going on as much as where there's actual sinners who are, you know, expiating their sins before getting allowed to go into heaven. So that's, so in that respect, if that's true, doesn't that seem more similar then to those who do have to, like in Islam, who have to go to hell and then spend their time there and then, if possible, get to paradise? Oh, so you're talking about the, the Catholic understanding of purgatory? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not as well-versed on the Catholic uh, understanding. Uh, I thought it was something like they're waiting for further judgment. Um, but, I mean, the key point we're making is that in hell, you will be suffering in hell. You know? Right. And, right. And so they may parallel. Um, that, right. That's beyond my knowledge. Yeah. Sure. No, thanks. Yeah, uh, in one of the ayah, Allah says, okay, uh, are the Mu'tazila sort of applying a platonic math understanding of, of Allah? So, so if we were to look throughout our tradition, uh, much of Islamic law is derived through the categories of Aristotle. Uh, the Mu'tazila seem to be a mixture of the platonic thinkers as well as the Neoplatonists. So you have Plato, you have Plotinus. And it seems to be sort of in, in that thread uh, of, of argument. Now, if we look at the eastern end of the Muslim world, uh, then you see a lot of Hindu categorizations. So before the era of colonialism, a lot of Islam and the Indian subcontinent and further east uh, was, was brought in through Sufi schools. And there, it's a lot of Hindu type languages and such. But on the West End, which is the default, as all of us are probably used to, it's, um, it's very, very Greek-influenced. This is one of the critiques that Iqbal gives to, to Islamic thought. It's saying it went too far in terms of the Greek realm. Any other questions that I missed? Uh, I have a question. Just right, to, Dr. Mahath, yeah. when, if, when you're ready, to clarify the earlier one. Go for it. So what I was asking was, you know, when you look at natural history, we get a story of humankind, you know, within physics, the cosmos, um, ge geology, a deep history of the earth, the evolution of human beings. And, when, you know, looking at that history, some of these events um, there's just no evidence for them right now. I know that absence of evidence of a flood doesn't mean that there was, uh, doesn't mean that there wasn't such an event or, or maybe Nuh alayhi salam living 950 years. But so you have to believe in a number of things that seem outside of what nature would permit. And that's why they're miraculous. And so, you know, uh, taking that further, if you're a dominionist, the theology would say that, look, in our limited understanding, we're running out of resources or whatever, but God provides and he creates. And so we shouldn't rely on our own understanding. We should re rely on God's providence and, um, and he's going to regenerate and create. So this, uh, when, we, when we look at um, maybe our condition through a caretaker lens, which my understanding is a relatively more recent um, understanding of, of Khilafah, um, we seem to put responsibility on ourselves rather than relying on the providence and Rahmah of God. 
And so that's that's what I was saying was that is there a connection between trying it, taking these events, insisting that they are literal, and then a dominionist sort of uh, turn to theology, mm -hmm. and that and that if we move towards a non-literal sense, we might appreciate natural history more, and then see our revelation maybe in for the lessons rather than insisting mm -hmm. on their literal. So. Uh your logical reasoning uh, makes complete sense. Uh, I would have to study more about the thought of dominionists, but from what I do know of them, I think it fits exactly what you're describing, which is that, uh, that God made the world for us, he will continue to make the world for us, and is for us to partake of in whatever capacity we deem appropriate. And examples of this are the way God saved all these different populations that he did intervene when was necessary that seems to be consistent with what you're saying uh, and then and then you find similar kind of approach with some muslim um muslims right so you you know have as many you know children populate the earth and so, and so on because god is the one who will provide he will provide yeah or even just you know in the case of the quarantine right now all the people are still insisting on going to the masjid right you know, exactly take care of me yeah. Exactly. And so if you move to a you know a non-literal reading, what are the implications of that? And move away from the literal. There are huge implications that maybe you know we need to at some point think about. Yeah, I mean the short answer I'd give to the latter part is if we take everything as literal, uh, and if we don't have a methodology of interpretation, then we can take the literal to mean anything we want them to mean. Or we can take the metaphor to mean anything we want it to mean. And so, so what becomes uh, fundamentally important become, uh, would be what is, uh, what is the methodology we're using to derive this interpretation? And that becomes a theological school. But yeah, those are, those are my thoughts. Um, Wissam, uh, at the beginning of class today. Uh, just a comment, just a comment, uh, an extension to Mahan. Uh, since we are in the COVID era, that the demographics are going to be be taking center stage in post-COVID discourse. So the, the, the safest course for Muslims is to take that uh, more Muslims in the literal sense rather than the, the metaphoric sense. You're saying we so all need to be fruitful. Three kids, per, three, three kids per Muslim family, per Muslim couple. Okay, your number went down because about 10 years ago you said five. Yeah, well, uh, I'm just being kind. Okay, okay, thank you very much. To the millennials. Okay, thank you. So, uh, with Saham's question at the beginning of class today, you talked about us being in a state of pre-eternity. In one of our recent classes, we talked about Allah giving us a warning that there is no excuse not to believe in him because he warned us, asked us, who is your Lord? And we agree that he is our Lord, our maker and Lord before we enter this life. I'm paraphrasing the conversation. When Allah talked to us in this pre-eternity state, did Allah talk to our future selves all grown up, our souls, or at what point in our lives? It was in that pre-eternity. Uh, now, how does time apply there? Allah knows best, but it was in that pre-eternity, if I'm understanding your question, when he spoke to us. So pre-womb. Um, that was so to speak hardwired in our design. Uh, Thoreau? Yeah. So speaking to that, do we remember that? Is that in our unconscious? How do we so, understand that memory? So, lack of? There's a, a narrative. Uh, 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 a teacher of mine a long time ago uh, said that uh, made reference to a narration in which Omar uh, actually remembered it. Okay. Uh, I have not yet been able to find that narration anywhere. So how would that translate for us? We might call it our unconscious. I use the term, it's in our hard wiring. Um, is it located in our neurons in our brain? Is it located in neurons in our heart? That um, uh, knows best. Is it located in a soul that is separate from this physical condition? Um, uh, this again is where the theological schools try to figure it out, but I have no answer for you on that one. Were our souls actually there? Uh, so the understanding is yes, but there we're talking about a place that is outside of time and space. Right. Any other questions about anything at all? All righty. Wait, another question. Okay. We will stop right here then, inshallah.
And tomorrow we'll start jumping into the events of the story. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah ta'ala reward you all and uh, we'll uh, continue tomorrow.